Well, I heard a story a couple weeks ago about three brothers who decided that they wanted to do something very special for their father, who was turning 80 years old. All three sons had done very well in their careers, and so they decided that for his 80th birthday, they were going to get somewhat extravagant gifts. Each one of them a different gift, but a special gift for their dad who was turning 80. The first brother bought him a large house. He had grown up in a very small home, and he thought, what dad really needs is dad needs a big house. At 80 years of age, it'd be great for him to be able to enjoy a a large home, bigger than anything that he'd ever imagined he would live in or that he, for that matter, ever even wanted. The second son uh, thought, well, uh, he's going to get him the house. I'm going to go ahead and get dad a, a new car. Uh, He remembered growing up and them always driving those old cars that they were trying to keep together. And he thought, now that that I've done well and now that dad's turning 80 years old, I'm going to buy him a nice car, a nicer car than he's ever had before. And uh, even though uh, his eyesight might be failing uh, a little bit, uh, he'll at least be able to look at it in the driveway and look at it in the garage. Every man likes a new car, right, whether we, we drive it or not. The third brother, not knowing exactly what to do, but knowing that his dad really loved to read Scripture, he came up with a very unique gift. He thought, I'm going to get dad something that can help him with his, with, his, with his love of Scripture. Knowing that his eyesight was beginning to fail and it was very difficult for him to read, he said, I have found the perfect gift. I am going to get him a, a parrot that is able to, on command, quote, any passage of Scripture in the Bible. I mean, how great could that be, right, for an 80-year-old father? And so on their dad's 80th birthday, they couldn't wait to present uh, these gifts. And they got together with him uh, for dinner, and uh, the first son presented his gifts, and here were his responses. To the first son, he said, what a great house. He said, you and your mom and I, we, we never enjoyed something like this all of our lives, even when you were growing up. I love the house, but it's, it's just way too big for me. To the second son, he said, I, I love the car. He said, wow, what I would have given 40 years ago when I was going through that midlife crisis to have a car like this. I really love the car, but, you know, my eyesight is beginning to fail. I don't really know how long I'll be able to drive it. And to the third son, he said, I absolutely love your gift. In fact, it's the best chicken that I've ever had. (laughs) That's the problem as we begin to age, right? I thought that was a funny story. We're always trying to outdo ourselves for our fathers on Father's Day and for their birthdays, and these three sons certainly learned a valuable lesson. Many of you know that my uh, father passed away at the age of 60, after being di- diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor at the age of 41. And really, almost 20 years of my relationship with my father uh, was uh, knowing him as a man that was struggling with health in the last few years of his life uh, in a nursing home. Went into a nursing home at age 58. Uh, the last several years uh, of his life were obviously very physically uh, taxing on him, uh, most of that period of time, he had uh, his, uh, the ability to be able to, to know who we were and to think and interact and talk, and that was a, a good thing. But at age 58, it became impossible for my mom to care for him at home, and after caring for him for many years, uh, he needed to go uh, to the nursing home. 
A couple of years before uh, my dad uh, went to be with the Lord, as I left to go home from a visit, um, I said goodbye to him as happened so often in those last several years of his life while he was hospitalized. And I had grown accustomed to those goodbyes. Many of you have done that as well, where you know that a parent who is either uh, uh, very old or uh, they're very ill, you know that as you say goodbye, that very well could be the last time that you say goodbye to them here uh, on this earth. And so, uh, as I normally did, I hugged him, I prayed with him, and I made sure that he knew that I loved him. That's always been very important to me. It was with them growing up and in college to make sure that every phone call ended with the fact that they at least knew that I loved him. No matter how idiotic my behavior was at times, I still uh, loved them. And so I hugged him, prayed with him, told him that I loved him. And those times were always filled with tears. I'm not an incredibly emotional guy, uh, but seeing my dad in that state was always a very emotional thing for me as I would walk out of a hospital room or walk out of his room uh, there at their home. And just before I walked out the door, I turned as I was about ready to exit uh, the hospital room, and I looked back, and I saw that he was sobbing. Now, you'd have to know, have known my dad to know that um, he wasn't a very emotional man either, and so for him to be sobbing was, uh, was a pretty big deal. And uh, I turned around, and I walked back to the side of his bed, and I said, Dad, why are you crying? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, I failed you as a father. He said, I could have done so much more. I could have been so much more to you. And now I'm not able to. Those were incredibly uh, difficult words uh, for me to hear. You see, my dad had grown up in the home of an alcoholic father. Uh, He came to know the Lord uh, late in his high school uh, years. Uh, My memory of my grandfather, his father, is not very good. He He passed away when I was in kindergarten, and I simply knew him as a man that was mean. He was not a nice person. He was very harsh with his grandchildren. I remember that even as a five-year-old. I remember him being very harsh uh, with my grandmother, who was a very sweet woman, the quintessential example of a grandma. But I remember him being very harsh in his words with her and his treatment of her and of my dad and his younger brother. He wasn't a pleasant man to be around. That's the home that my dad had grown up in. I asked my dad as I turned around and as those tears were coming out of his eyes, I said to him, have you ever abused alcohol? Have you ever been unfaithful to your wife, to my mother? Have you ever uh, abused my mother? Have you ever physically touched my mother? Have you ever tried to harm her with your hand? And the answer to all those questions was no. And I told my dad emphatically that he had not failed. You see, what my dad had done is my dad had turned the corner uh, in our family heritage. He had had made a sharp right turn and said, I am not going to be the kind of dad that I grew up with. Things will be different in my home. Was my dad a perfect father? Obviously not. Will I be a better father? father to my children than he was to me, I hope so. And I hope that they, with God's empowerment, will be a better uh, father to their children as the generations continue. But I want you to know this this morning, dads. I want you to know that while my father made mistakes at times, he wasn't a perfect father, I thank God for my dad. I thank God for his life. I thank God for the 
uh, discipline that he instilled in my life. Now, I didn't at times when I was a middle schooler or a high school student, uh, even early in college, I didn't thank God for all those things. But I do now, I do now know uh, that I was very privileged to have him as my father. You see, he loved Jesus. I know that. And I know where he is this morning. And I know that he loved me. I remember uh, very well the night that I became a dad. It was August 27th, 1992. After seven ultrasounds, count them, seven ultrasounds, uh, we were told that we would have a little girl. And uh, so we had uh, the, the pink room, the pink walls. Uh, we even had a little teddy bear border, wallpaper border around the room. And if that wasn't enough, we were so sure that we had gotten a remnant of a dusty pink carpet for that particular room. I mean, this was a girl's room. You can imagine that evening, late in that evening on August 27, 1992, when I was in uh, that delivery room and all of a sudden I realized, wow, I am a dad and not only am I a dad, but I have a son. And I want to tell you that I do consider uh, it a great privilege to be a dad. I like that word, dad. I did a little study this week to figure out where it came from. I'm not sure anybody really knows, but I like the word dad. I like to be called dad. It's an incredible privilege, but yet those of us that are here this morning and we are dads, we know as well that while it's an incredible privilege, it bears with it an incredible responsibility when a child calls you dad. With God's empowerment, I want to be, and I believe that most of you, if not all of you this morning who are dads, want to be the best dad that you can be. And I've determined early on in my life that when I'm old, I want to be able to say that I finished that task well. I, I want to be satisfied in the end with the things that really matter uh, in my life. I want to make much of the name of Jesus I want to be a great husband as much as I can, as much as I'm able to, and I want to be a great dad to my kids. And so I want to ask you this morning, dads, if one day, like my dad, you find yourself uh, laying in a bed in a nursing home with nothing but your memories, and I think about that a lot, because that's what my dad had. He had nothing but his memories. Everything had to be done for him. The only thing he could do was think and speak a few words. That's all he had was his memories. I want to ask you, if you find yourself in that position as an old man, I want to ask you, what's going to matter in your life? What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want to pass on to the next generation? I trust for many of you that you have thought about that. And if you really haven't thought about that, that maybe today for the first time, you will uh, think about that. The definition of legacy is anything that's handed down to another. And so many times we hear uh, in the news, uh, certainly if you watch CNBC, you hear about this wealthy individual that died and his legacy is the company that he left to his children. And all of the stock and all of the real estate and all the bank accounts that come along with that, that's a legacy. I want to ask you, what is your legacy? Some of you have heard me talk about before, my my inheritance uh, wasn't really incredible from my father. In fact, my inheritance was um, 
probably 35 to 40 book, uh, boxes of theology books and some old tools. That was my inheritance. I would have preferred some stock. IBM would have been nice. I would have preferred uh, some CDs, a money market account, something of that sort. My dad did not possess those things. The two most important uh, possessions that he had on this earth were his books and his tools, and obviously he left those to me. The unfortunate thing is that I live in North Carolina, and he lived in Nebraska, so I had to get my inheritance. And it cost me, I figured out at the end of the day, it cost me more to get my inheritance than it actually was worth. When I got back and I, I weighed that, and I thought I could have bought all this stuff and actually saved myself the money. You see, my dad did not leave me a lot of physical possessions in this world. He didn't have a lot of those things. But what he did leave me was a legacy of godliness. He taught me what it meant to be a man of God, to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so today I want to look briefly at the life of one dad in the Bible. Now here's what you've probably become used to. I can tell by some of the body language of some of you dads. All right, here's where Brian rips on us. I'm not going to do that today. I figured, I told Charlie Rogers this last night. I figured, I rip on guys all the time. I challenge you. I beat you up all the time. And you need to be beat up. I need to be beat up. And I I started thinking about this week, about... um, I've never been to a Mother's Day sermon, never preached a Mother's Day sermon where you beat up the ladies, right? We celebrate Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. You're so awesome. You're so beautiful. We do all this on Mother's Day. And then Father's Day, what happens? The guys are sitting there and some guy just lasers in on you and just beats you mercilessly. And you go, when will Father's Day end? Right? I'm not going to do that today. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you with the privilege that it is to be a dad and encourage you, especially you young dads, you guys that are anticipating being fathers. If you do these things, I believe you can finish well, and the prescription is really very simple. There was a guy who who lived in the Old Testament. In fact, he is uh, the father of the Jewish nation. I love uh, to study this man's life, and he did a reasonably, I say reasonably, not perfect, but a reasonably good job as a dad, as a father, as a husband. He made some mistakes along the way, but I think as we'll see here in just a few minutes, he ended up finishing the race very well at the age of 175. Can you imagine it? Those of you, Mr. Hoig's sitting down there, and he's 85 years old, and uh, you're not even halfway there. You know, if you, if you live to be 175, 175 years old, he finished. Uh, Abraham finished. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles, and we're going to look real quickly at uh, Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to walk you through several events in Abraham's life that really, I believe, marked uh, his life. In chapter 12, in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, the Lord would later, God would later change his name to Abraham, but in chapter 12, we meet him as Abram. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I'm going to show you. Right away, God meets with him. And I think this is an incredible thing to think about what it would be like for God to come down and say, here's exactly what I want you to do. He told Abraham at 75 years of age, it's amazing that some of us get the idea when we're 45, 50 years old, oh, I can't really do anything too risky at this point. You know, I'm an old man. He's 75 years old now. In retrospect, he's going to live to be 175, right? So he hasn't even had his midlife crisis yet. But 
He's, 100, he's 75 years old, and God comes to him, and he basically tells him three things. I want you to leave your society. I want you to leave everything that's familiar to you. I want you to, to, to go away from your country. I want you to go away from your stability, from your relatives. And I want you to leave the security of your father's household and your father's land. And I'm going to take you to a land which I'm going to show you. 75 years old. It's going to take a lot of faith to be able to do that, right? In verse 2 it says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all, not just some, not just your kids, but look at this, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God promised him a couple of things. He promised him that he would build from him a great nation, a great nation which would also be accompanied by a great name. And that took a lot of faith if you're, if you're Abraham and you think about it. <laughs> Abraham is 75 years old. We'll find out later that he is uh, married to a woman named Sarai, who will later become Sarah, who is barren. She can't have children. If it would have been me at that point, I'd have looked up at God and said, God, think you got the wrong guy. I'm 75 years old. I'm married to a woman that can't have children. And you're going to build of me a great nation? I'm interested to see how you're going to perform this task. He also said that he would protect him, that in that hostile world that he was going to interact in, there were going to be a lot of things that were going to happen, but God said, I'm going to protect you, and as a result of you, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And it's interesting to me that right after God promises uh, protection for Abraham and he promised him all these things he's going to do, we don't have time to look, but if you look down uh, in your Bibles there at verse 10, you find out that he, there was a famine, and so he went out, and, and they were looking for food, looking for pastures for their animals. And right after God's uh, uh, guarantee to him that he was going to bless him, that he was going to protect him, he's confronted with one of Pharaoh's officers who uh, is attracted to uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, and uh, he tells Sarah to do what? He tells Sarah to tell them that you're my sister. Because if you're my sister, then he will take you to be his wife. But if you're my wife, then they will kill me. So right away, he doesn't really believe God, right? <laughs> In fact, he's so low that he says, hey, tell them you're my sister. And in doing that, he knew that potentially she could be taken away from him, and she was. And then if we go back, to, if we look ahead at chapter 20, you don't have to turn there right now, but if you look at chapter 20, not only did he lie once in that context, but he lies again, and he does the exact same thing to protect himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I take a lot of comfort in that. I am so glad, and I have said a number of times, I'm so glad that as I, as I read through Scripture and as I understand Scripture, that God doesn't take away all the flaws from people. Aren't you? Aren't you glad that he doesn't just tell us a story and we look at that and go, yeah, right, well, I can never do that. I could never be that kind of dad. I could never be that kind of a, of a husband. I look at that and go, well, I could be that kind of a husband. I'd, I'd never tell my wife to tell some other guy that she was my sister. I'd never do that. I like that God exposes the flaws. If you were to look at uh, chapter 13, you see Abraham and his nephew Lot and you'll remember that they had, uh, the text says in verse 2 of chapter 13, that they had so much stuff. They had a lot of animals. Their, their wealth wasn't measured in stocks and bank accounts and those kind of things. It was really measured in all of the stuff that they had. So their animals. And there was so much stuff that they couldn't stay in the same place. And so some of you will remember the story well in chapter 13 that 
they go to the top of a mountain and they look out over the plain and, and Abraham says, hey, you choose. You choose which way you're going to go. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. You choose. Lot does what most of us would have done. Lot looks out and goes, that looks good to me. Is that okay with you? And Abraham says yes, and Lot heads off towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham makes an incredible decision at that point, which will obviously have an effect on Lot's life and have an effect on his life as well. Now, you remember that God told Abraham that he was going to make from him a great nation and that many other, he said that to him many other times in the context of these uh, chapters. Obviously, Abraham had his doubts. You see, Abraham wanted a son, and so he disobeyed God in order to have a son. Sarah told him that that, uh, in chapter uh, 16 that because she was barren and she would never be able to give him a son, that he should take her maidservant, Hagar, as his wife, and that would be the way in which he would have a son. Now, we don't have, a, have time in this particular context to, uh, to really build out that story and help you understand all the underlying uh, effects of that decision. Needless to say, Abraham was disobedient to God, and as a result of his disobedience, Hagar had a son. His name was Ishmael. And if you know your history well, you know that as a result of that one decision, we still have turmoil in our world today. In chapter 18, God promised Abraham that he would have a son. You see in chapter 18 and verse 12, I love Sarah's response, and we're oftentimes very critical of her response, and yet... Remember, Sarah at this point, probably Bible scholars believe, is, uh, is well into her 90s. And it says in verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being also, old also? She goes, it's not just me that's old. That guy's old too. I mean, how do you expect the two of us to have a child? And so even though God had sent his messenger to them to say, this is what I'm going to do, Sarah doubted that. In fact, in chapter 21, she'll give birth to a son, and they will name him Isaac, that name meaning laughter. How would you like to have that? And for the rest of your life, every time you call your son's name, you remember that you laughed at God when he said that he was going to do something that seemingly was impossible. God promised the son. God gave him the son. And then in chapter 22, I believe we read the ultimate test of Abraham's faith. We don't have time to look at that particular passage much this morning, but if you go to chapter 22, those of you that are familiar with that passage know that God asked him to take his son up to the top of Mount Moriah, and he said, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. And if you remember the story, Abraham gets to the point where the knife is in his hand and he's about ready to bring down the knife into his son's chest Dads, we can hardly even fathom and imagine what that must have been like for that man at that particular moment. But he believed God. He obeyed God. God stopped him. He passed that that test of his faith. And God provided a lamb. God provided a sacrifice. But that was the ultimate moment of who would Abraham trust? Chapter 23, and I know we're walking through here very quickly. You're thinking, wow, it's taken us all this time. It's taken us months to get through the book of Nehemiah. And already we're in chapter 23 of Genesis. In chapter 23, we find out that, uh, that Sarah dies. Uh, she dies, and in, verse 20, or in chapter 24, Abraham is blessed with a daughter-in-law, and that daughter-in-law's name is Rebekah. Now, I hope sometime that we can study the life of Abraham in more depth, and I'd really love to talk, especially to you 
middle school, high school girls, you single ladies that are here, about the virtuous woman that we see in Rebecca. God gives him an incredible daughter-in-law. And by the, by the way, I don't know if you realize it, maybe many of you don't, uh, Isaac was uh, a fairly old man at this point in Bible times as far as marriage goes. Uh, scholars believe he was about 40 years old at this point. 40 years old. And you remember I told you last week that in this particular culture, those wives were chosen for them. You've got to believe that at some point Isaac's looking at Abraham going, Come on, Dad. There's got to be some woman out there that's good enough for you that will satisfy me. It's a really great lesson, and I don't want to get off on a tangent, but what a great thing to, to go back and study Isaac's life and realize that he was so obedient and he honored his father so well, and then God blesses him with Rebecca. I think it's a great lesson for you students to remember that your parents are put into your life as protection for you. Isaac certainly saw the blessing that came from being obedient uh, to his parents and Rebecca comes into Isaac's life in chapter 24. We also find out in uh, chapter 25 that Abraham liked the wedding so much that he decided, hey, I'm still a young man. How about if I get another wife? And he marries a woman by the name of Keturah. Uh, You can only begin to estimate that he's probably at this time uh, well over 100 years old. And you're just thinking, I don't know about you, but as I've had opportunity to study this week, I'm just going at 100 years old. You think you just want to sit down and relax a little bit, right? Not Abraham. He takes a wife to himself, Keturah. And get this, they have six sons that are mentioned there uh, in chapter 25. Uh, That made Abraham very, very tired, and he was a very old man. Okay? Let me give you just real quickly, and I know that was a quick synopsis of Abraham's life, but let me give you quickly... Just point out Abraham's weaknesses. He was impatient. He was obviously fearful. Men, you ever been impatient? You ever been fearful of what's ahead of you? Let me say this to you, ladies. Sometimes I think men are beat up a whole lot, and you know, you need to stand up, you need to be a man, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. Let me tell you, sometimes it's a rough thing being a man. I I want you ladies to understand that. And obviously, I I, I don't understand fully and completely and probably don't appreciate what it's like to be a woman. Obviously, I'm not. But I do understand what it's like to be a man. And I want to tell you this, that sometimes it's a fearful thing being a man. It's fearful knowing that that, that you have these people that are in your life that you love and that you care about, and, and they depend on you to support them. They depend on you to protect them. They depend on you to put a roof over their heads and food on the table. And sometimes, guys, and especially in a climate like we live in, it can be a very, very fearful thing. Abraham experienced that. He was impatient. He feared. We also know, obviously, they had a tendency to lie under pressure. (laughs) At least two times we record in Scripture, God records for us that he just lied. When he was under pressure and things got really tough and he didn't know what to do, he lied. Those are just a few of Abraham's weaknesses that are revealed in the biblical account of his life. Now, he obviously had some strengths. God tested Abraham more severely than probably most characters in Scripture and on more than one instance. And Abraham many times exhibited extraordinary faith. He exhibited extraordinary faith. He exhibited extraordinary trust and obedience to the will of God. And he was obviously incredibly well-respected and successful in his occupation. He had the courage to face the enemies that he came against many times. 
And I want, to, I want you to see, as we close this morning, I want you to see Genesis 25, 7, and 8. I want to focus there for just a few moments. The Bible records the end of the life of Abraham in a truly remarkable way. In fact, when I die, if some of you are there, and Diana's saying, what should we put on his tombstone? And she probably won't ask you that, but if she did, okay? Here would be a great thing to go to for a little bit of inspiration because I would want this to be said of my life. Look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 25 of Genesis. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived. 175 years. Now, I don't expect to live 175 years, so that's not the part that I want you to put there, okay? But look at verse 8. I love this verse, probably one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Isn't that great? Isn't that awesome? That's like one of the best verses in all of Scripture, certainly in the Old Testament. I love that. He died at the ripe old age. Who would argue with that, right? 175 years old. I mean, that is a ripe old age. I'm starting to think about what I feel like at age 46. I can't imagine what I would feel like at 175. But I think that the translators of the New American Standard got it right when they said a ripe old age. That's old. In anybody's standard, that's old. And I love that, that it says he died satisfied with life. He was satisfied with life. That's how I want to go. If I get my choice, and God, I know you're listening, if I get my choice, I want to go with a satisfied life. A ripe old age, I'd like that. 175, not so sure. An old man satisfied with life. One Bible teacher that I read this week, said it this way, how few people really experience joy and satisfaction when they reach old age. When they look back, he said, it's with regret. When they look ahead, it's with fear. And when they look around, it is with complaint. That's tragic. But oftentimes, that is a very, very true statement. Like everything else in life, and I especially want to talk to you young men right now, and you define whatever young is for you. I define 46 as young, so I just choose to believe that. Like everything else in life, though, to be successful in your old age, it means you start working at it when you're very young. You see, you don't become an old man and decide that you want to die with a satisfied life because you're going to have an awful lot of regret. If you're here this morning and you're sitting here as a middle school, as a high school student, or as a young man, a young father, a young husband, let me tell you that everything else in life is meaningless. If you don't understand what it means to have a vibrant, growing relationship with Jesus Christ and to be successful in old age, you have to start working at it very young. If we were to go to the book of Ecclesiastes and look at chapter 12, we would see that the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, said what? He said, remember your creator when? When you get to be an old man, you're laying in the nursing home and you can't do anything else? Yeah, remember your creator and give him a little bit of do those last few days of your life. It's not what Solomon said. Solomon said, remember your creator in the days of your youth. I wish we had time to read that passage. I love that passage. The chapter describes some of the inevitable physical problems of old age, but it emphasizes that a godly life begins in one's youth. And that that's an investment that pays rich dividends when life draws to a close. 
And so here's what I've asked myself this week as I've studied the life of Abraham a little bit and focused in on these two verses. Why did he die a satisfied life? I've thought about it a lot. How can I lay there as an old man when I can't do anything else but think about uh, what my life has been and look forward to heaven? How can I lay there going, I am satisfied? What was his legacy? Let me give you just two things real quickly. Number one, he had a clear testimony of salvation by faith. A clear testimony of salvation by faith. Let me tell you this morning, dads, young, old, no matter where you are in the middle, you need to know Jesus as your personal Savior. You don't need to know just a little bit about God. You need to know him as your personal Savior. You need to be in a situation where you have placed your trust in Christ alone as your personal Savior. Not the good things that you do. Not how much money you might put in one of those towers in the back. Not all the nice things that you provide for your kids and for maybe other people. You have got to be convinced where you will spend eternity. And the only way you spend eternity in heaven with Jesus is by trusting in his sacrifice alone as the payment for your sin. That's where Abraham was. He had a clear testimony of salvation by faith. In fact, Paul cited it in Romans uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. He said, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. He was a man of faith. Let me ask you this morning, dads, do you have a authentic relationship with Jesus Christ? Has there been a point in your life when you have acknowledged before a holy God that you are a sinner and that your sin has separated you from God and the only way for you to be reconciled to God is to place your trust in Christ alone as your Savior so that he wipes that sin debt clean and thereby you are reconciled to God? Let me tell you this, guys, this morning, if you have not come to that one point in your life, that pivotal point in your life, You will not die with a satisfied life. In fact, you will be of all pitied. I think he died satisfied because he had a clear testimony of faith. Number two, I think he had an example of a faithful life. You look at it and you go, a faithful life? I mean, come on. He went out and took his wife's maidservant and and married her and had a child with her because he didn't believe God. You call that faithfulness? Well, there's true that he had occasional lapses of of his faith. But I would say if you studied the life of Abraham, you will find this to be true, that the general manner of his life evidenced faith in God's word. In fact, Scripture says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10 record for us these words. By faith, Abraham, when he was called... He obeyed, going out to a place which he was to receive for inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going to go, and he did it at age 75. And then for the next hundred years, he wandered around. I call that faithfulness. Verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. I love verse 10, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Because God said, if you do this, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. He lived an example of a faithful life. Here's the point, men. you got to be committed to leaving a legacy. 
You might not leave wealth. You may not leave records on a sports field. You may not even be known outside of your own small circle of influence, but you can live a legacy, leave a legacy if you strive to be a godly man. Here's what I've be- become convinced of in my own life, and you might want to write this down, some of you young guys especially. One of my greatest fears in life is that I will come to the end and realize that I was successful at the things that really did not matter. That, that's got to be one of the most sobering moments in a man's life. When you come to the end and you go, I succeeded at all the things that don't really matter. I had a great career. I provided great vacations for my kids. I was a nice guy. I did all of these things. I've got plaques on my wall for being salesman of the month, salesman of the year, salesman of the decade, salesman of the century. I've got all of these things, but I come to the end of my life and I recognize that I succeeded at just the very things that don't matter. That's one of my greatest fears as a father. But being a dad who loves Jesus and lives his life pointing his children and others in his circle of influence to Jesus That's the direction that ultimately matters. You know, dads, I recognize that some of you are sitting here today and you're thinking uh, what you always think on Father's Day, and I don't want you to think that. You're thinking, man, it's just another reminder that that I'm failing as a dad. And actually, for you, maybe it's a day that you just assume forget, especially some of you older fathers with kids out of the home, maybe. I have really good news uh, for you today. And this is why one of the, there's probably 10 reasons, but one of the reasons why I love what I do and what I get to spend my life doing. Because I get to talk about a God who I believe is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances because he knows just how messed up we really are. I love that I can do that. I would hate to be involved teaching a gospel or teaching a religious set of duties that just said, you mess up and I'm going to whack your head off. And I go, well, we messed up. All our heads are gone. I mean, it's just a, I would hate that. I love to be able to say to you that God is the God of the second chance. And our Bible is full of examples of a God who is long-suffering and he's merciful. His mercy is demonstrated to you, by the way, if you find yourself in that situation this morning, dads, in the fact that you're here this morning. And one more time, God's saying, I'm going to let you hear truth. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to truth. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 to 23 say this, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I've said to you before, I'm glad they're new every morning because I use mine up every day. By the time midnight comes, anybody else with me? By the time midnight comes, I'm going, I can't wait for the clock to strike 12.01 because the mercies are going to be new again. That's the kind of God that says, I'm going to give you another opportunity. I'm going to give you another chance. You can redeem those years that the locusts have eaten away. He's the God of the second and third and the fourth chance. You can decide today that you're going to be the kind of dad that God wants you to be. Your your life is going to be marked by an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ and a faithful life demonstrated by living according to biblical principle. For some of you today, this is a great day of celebration. 
It's awesome because I know some of you so well and I've known you for so long and it's a great day of celebration. I look at my father-in-law who's sitting right down at the back towards me. It ought to be a day of celebration for you, sir. He's got three kids that love Jesus, given their lives to serve him. They love him. That's a satisfied life. And there are many of you that I look at you and I know that's your legacy. That's, that's the mark that you're leaving in your home. And so for you, you go, bring on Father's Day. I love this. Man, I'm going to get a steak on the grill that I don't have to cook. There are going to gonna be ties that I probably won't wear. But I love this. I'm satisfied with this. Oh, you're not perfect. You make your share of mistakes along the journey But you're in love with Jesus and you're striving daily to pass that legacy on to the next generation. And if that's you today, I want to say thanks for being a great dad. Thanks for doing what you do. Because it makes the world a lot better better place to have men like you that are standing up for those things that God says matter. Those things that God says, in the end, this is what counts. Be successful at this. And you will, like Abraham, die a satisfied life. So I want to say to you, happy Father's Day. And as we close today, I want to do something uh, a little different than is typical. Uh, If you're a dad here this morning, and here's my definition of a dad, all right? If you've had children, if you are... uh, if you know you got a child that's cooking in the oven right now, all right, I consider you a dad, all right, and I know that's several of you. If that's you this morning, dads, I want you just to stand right now. Just stand right where you are. And don't, and don't sit down, just stand up right where you are, all right? Let's give them a hand. All right, now don't sit down. Don't sit down. All right, we're going to do something. We're going to do something just a little bit different this morning. I want you to stay standing right where you are. And uh, kids, if your dad is here, all right, if he's in the auditorium right now, I want you to find him. I want you to stand beside him. I want you to put your arm around him, all right? And we're going to pray a prayer of blessing and dedication on your dads right now, okay? So just go wherever you are. If you see a dad standing alone and he looks like a guy you'd like to be your dad and your dad's not here... your dad's up on stage, you can come up on stage. You can do that. Feel free to do that. All right. Hunter, that guy right in back of you is an incredible man. Stand up, put your arm around him. There we go. Hunter, you too, man. Get over there. Get over there. He's, he's an incredible. Get over there. Jump over that seat right there. You can do that. You're a big, strong athlete. There you go. Ah, oh, there we go. All right. Get next to him. That's a good man right there. And there's some other guys back there too. You see him standing alone, you go put your arm around him, all right? Guys, I want you to love Jesus, and I want you to point your kids to Jesus. And I'm convinced of this, that when you do that, we're obviously a stronger body of believers. But not only that, uh, we have greater impact on this community as we impact that next generation. Because people notice those things. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but not every dad in our community behaves like I just described. So what an incredible opportunity it is for us to to live the life and to be the men that God's called us to. Let's recommit ourselves to doing that.
Let's pray.